Downset Hike, it's time to talk about our feelings, panic attacks, depression, attachment theory, disassociation, both on and off the field. Wait, what? That's right. Real stories from athletes and comedians. Batter up. Let's make friends with the voices in our heads. You're listening to Sad Jocks. And now, here's your host, Katie. It's me, Katie Felber. I'm your host. What is up, fam? Welcome to episode three of Sad Jocks, your one-stop shop for all things sports and mental health. Today, I had the honor of sitting down with Imani McGee Stafford, a WNBA player, abuse survivor, mental health advocate, and poet. Oh, and future lawyer, folks. What can't she do? Imani's story is inspiring. She graduated from the University of Texas at Austin with a degree in accounting and became the first UT women's basketball player to clock over a thousand points, a thousand rebounds, and 200 blocks. But the biggest impact she left was off the court when she chose to speak out about her struggles with mental health and overcoming her abusive childhood. Now she takes every opportunity, including this random podcast, JK, hopefully not random for too long, to help those who have gone through similar struggles. Now guys, you know I do this podcast all in-house, in my studio apartment, underneath blankets. In fact, I'm under one now. And as with any DIY effort, sometimes there are audio issues. Mercury is in retrograde. So unfortunately, we had a bit of an issue capturing her primary audio. So what you're gonna hear is coming through my laptop. But hey, it works. And maybe one day I'll get into a legit studio. But in the meantime, let's get into her story because it's a special one. Good morning. I am here with Imani. How are you? I'm good. I can't complain. Can't complain. That is what's up. So I want to actually just clarify. So you go by McGee Stafford, right? Yeah. Okay, great. Because the internet's sometimes giving me boy. Yeah, so the internet won't let me get divorced. (laughs) (laughs) It refuses to divorce me, so. I love that. That's very like that's very old world of the internet. Must stay together, must power through. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, thank you for chatting with me. This is truly a dream. You, um, Atlanta dream. Um, you definitely have been outspoken about a lot of the topics I want to cover in this podcast. And so you're currently on the East Coast right now. Yeah, I'm in Atlanta. Nice. Are you based there or? Yeah. So when I played for Atlanta, I bought a house. So now I nice. live in Atlanta. And I, I rarely get a chance to actually live in my house, so COVID has kind of been nice. Yeah, it's kind of been good for um, in a, a slight agoraphobic like me, too. It's like, <laughs> this is kind of how my life has been, actually. But you're headed to law school in the fall? No, I've already started, actually. Oh, so, dude, you're in it. Um, I'm in a two-year accelerated program. Nice. So we start in June, and we basically go year-round. Like, the longest break we have is, like, three weeks for Christmas. But Dang. everything else is year-round. That's awesome. So Southwestern Law School, is that, isn't that in LA? Or? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> nice. So you can do virtual classes. That's for okay. now, yeah, for now. So all of our classes for the first two are on Zoom. Um, because LA is still very much locked down as opposed to Atlanta. Yeah. And then um, we'll decide after our first two quarters if we'll be back in, in class or not. Nice. Um, but for the foreseeable future, at least, I'll be here and then I'll be moving back to LA. Nice. I want to just get right into it. So you grew up in Inglewood. 
Um, did you, so when did you first start struggling with mental health issues and, you know, follow up question, when, when did you first kind of reach out and start talking about it? When I first started struggling would probably be like, I guess my whole life maybe. Yeah. Um, I always felt like black sheep were like something was wrong, you know? Right. Like I used to say it felt like I was like a mime and I would be sitting there and screaming and like. Everyone could see me, but no one could, like, understand what was happening, I guess. Right. That was kind of, like, what my childhood felt like. Um, I didn't get the vocabulary to be like, oh, this is depression. Right. So I was probably, like, a teenager towards college. But it was always kind of something that sat with me. You yeah, know? I feel that. Um, and in terms of actually, like, talking about it, and that didn't come until college. Yeah. Uh, um, and I think a lot of that came with just the vocabulary to understand what was happening. Right. Um, so I grew up in an abusive household. And every time I say that, like, I always have to try to kind of clarify that, like, right. my parents are, like, good people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just that they trusted the wrong people with me and, like, they weren't ready to be in that situation. And my childhood was yeah basically an extension of that, right? Right. Um, and so I was sexually abused uh, by a family member. Um, which basically was something I didn't kind of understand until I started dating myself when I was 15, 16 and like learning what sex was and learning about sexuality. Uh And then I started having really bad nightmares. Um, Mm. And so from there, I made tons of terrible decisions. Uh, Right. (laughs) Started getting high. I kicked out of high school. I kicked out of my house. And just, it was was just kind of like a rolling wheel of badness. I just didn't know what to do. Like, I didn't know how to say what was wrong with me, right? Like, I didn't know how to explain these things. And I didn't really grow up in a household where we had a form to talk about our feelings or talk about Mm -hmm. what was going on. Like, my dad worked a lot. Mm -hmm. He was gone. He was gone. But... I was gone before he woke up, and he came home after I went to sleep. Right, know? right. Um, so it was just kind of not something that I knew how to speak about or ask about or explain. Um, and yeah. when I got to college, uh, I pretty much ran away to school. Like, I didn't come home for five years. Wow. And it was funny, because when I took my husband home for the first time, he didn't understand when I said, like, I ran away. And my dad was like, yeah, all your box- there's boxes and boxes of stuff in the, in the garage from your room. Yeah. And, like, he didn't get it, and I was like, no, like, I literally left in a suitcase and, like, never came back. Wow. Um, and, like, when I got to college, like, I was in an environment where I was told, like, you can't do it alone, right? Like, you have to rely on other people. And yeah. And I'm like, I've done it alone my entire life. Like, what do you need? And it was just kind of, like, a relearning and, like, learning how to trust other people. And, like, mm-hmm. outside of that, like, the University of Texas provided me with all the mental health services that I didn't have access to growing up. Right. um, Which definitely helped. Um, And then I came home from college once and I told my dad and I was probably like 18 Mm -hmm. and he immediately was just like, I get it now. Right. Like I get why we fought so much. I get why you didn't trust me. Mm. I get it. And I'm sorry, you know, but those words don't change. And like, you took a very long time for us to get to where we are now. Um, Right. A lot of conversations, a lot of healing, you know, but that was kind of what I was going through and I didn't understand how to explain it or go through it and then when I got to Texas I started doing poetry Amazing. and at the time I was doing a piece about basically confronting my abuser mm-hmm. and um I wanted to go to Brave New Voices which is the international poetry festival every year for ages 13 to 19 mm-hmm. and it's like a slam poetry event and I had made the youth slam team in Austin and so uh 
we were traveling to Philly. But in order for me to go, I had to miss practice. Mm. Um, Cause you know, it's summer workouts and stuff. And like my coach was like, okay, you can go, but you have to take along her network with you. And they're gonna do a fun piece about the artsy athletes, da 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 um, And it was supposed to be something that was stuffed on a Thursday night, like nothing, in, nothing serious. And when they heard that poem, they asked me like, do you feel comfortable talking about this? Mm-hmm. Because obviously they had never been in close quarters with me. Most of my team didn't know. Um, my coach was probably the only person that kind of knew my background. Um, wow. So, like, hearing this poem, it, like, really kind of freaked them out because they're like, you, you know, like, you, six, seven, big personality, smiley, right. mommy, is going, I have gone through these things, is going through these things. And I was, like, 19, and I remember being like, hey, I probably regret it, but sure, let's talk about it, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> and that became so much bigger than me. Um, yeah. To this day, I'm thankful that that happened. The guy that actually wrote this well, ESPN picks it up because ESPN owns one of her network. They turn it into a, an article on ESPN.com and a Sports Center feature, which runs during prime time during wow. March Madness. And it, it becomes so much bigger than me. Ooh. And the guy that wrote the article actually won like an Emmy or something off of it. Oh my God. Um, it became super crazy for me. And I remember being so scared, right? Because mm-hmm. like my darkest secrets were now like public knowledge people like my grandmother didn't even know things that were in that special mm-hmm. um but i'm so thankful that happened because it definitely changed the trajectory of my life right uh it helped me understand what my life purpose is why i'm still here why my three suicide attempts never worked yeah i mean i got kept me here i literally have the chills like i think it's like your higher self or something new that you had to say something maybe at that point it's like oftentimes we don't know what we're getting into but And like you said, you don't have the tools at a young age to be able to talk about what you're actually feeling. So would you say your time at at Texas, did you, um, like you started going to therapy around then and developing an awareness of of like what was going on? And and it was depression mostly, right? That you were struggling with? Yeah, it was depression um, and anxiety. I'm actually bipolar, which I did not figure out until I was an adult. Interesting. Um, (laughs) Wild. In college, for sure. I was just dealing with depression. Yeah, um, that's tough. And, and were you on medication at all during... Um, I was on and off mm-hmm. depressants. And it really became a point of me saying like, all right, you probably would be much further along in your career if you stayed on your freaking medicine. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, tough though. I mean, were you... So you weren't on bipolar medicine. You were on just kind of an no, S- SSRI. No, I was on depression, any, any depressants. Yeah. Like, the biggest part for me was kind of undoing the shame I have mm-hmm. attached to mental mental health and mental illness. Right. Um, and it also was just kind of this imposter thing, right? Because I spend my days talking about mental illness and, and telling people it's okay to deal with these things and telling people to take time to take inventory of mental health, reach out, talk to people. Right. And then I hop on and off my head. I hop on and off my meds. Right? That's tough. And would so you do that because of, like, side effects or... I'm deeply Christian, and the idea, like, I didn't grow up in, in an environment that, that prioritized or even believed in mental health, right? Uh-huh. So, the idea that I need to take a pill every day to make me okay or to make me functional was, like, something I didn't want to believe in. And also, like, I'm a high-functioning depressive. And because of my job, right, this is the first time in my life I've had something that I have to be alert for from nine to six, right? Before that, I've been an athlete. So I practice for four hours and then I do whatever I want to. And then outside of season, I go overseas. And, you know, so that I haven't had a job that requires me, mm-hmm. I guess, to be functional or that has somebody monitoring me right. to know if I'm different, right? Like I play basketball. I can play basketball 
power whatever my mental state is I can play basketball right for me I guess it was just kind of like the mental thing of like okay well we've been doing good for six months I don't need this anymore that's tough because it's I've been on Zoloft for about five years now and I'm, I'm on 25 milligrams which is like a low dose for mostly for anxiety but it's like I do think to myself I'm like dude I'm feeling good this is taking a back seat right now but then I think I think to my words of my therapist being like you know what just let it build up in your system more and do the work via therapy because a lot of times like your brain is just still reacting in that trauma mode and your body is too and like even though you feel fine you're like okay I might need just a little bit more help also just like understanding uh what normal is right yeah um when you grow up in chaos when you grow up in dysfunction that becomes your normal so it just feels not real like you're waiting for the other shoe to drop right when things are going smoothly you appreciate the the craziness the the dysfunctionality because that's what you're used to so for a very long time for me it was hard to be like i don't need anything going wild and i think that's honestly like the biggest thing with my bipolarity right like being on my meds is is nice i'm probably a more focused person i'm higher functioning but it's not as exciting yeah (laughs) i know dude it's kind of wild i looked back to like my pre-zoloff days and I'm like, whoa, looking in my journal, like I had some pretty like manic thoughts that I thought were like borderline genius. And then I'm like, wait, <laughs> I actually don't know if this is tethered in reality. But yeah, I mean, it is that excitement. Um, it's funny. People ask me, it's like, did your personality change when you got on Zoloft? And like, I'm definitely still the same person. But I think just a little more um, baseline of relaxed, whereas my baseline state would be like hyper aware all the time, like hyper vigilant. I mean, do you find that you're you're still basically the same person on these meds, like, or do you think it's just it's less of the highs and lows? Um, I think that it's like a middle ground. It's just not as often. My manic episodes and my depressive episodes are not as often. They still happen, but I'm also more aware of how to catch them before they become bad. Mm. Um, to like just kind of being self-aware of like oh this is a tendency this is a trigger okay right. like, this isn't a regular decision you're making now right you might be tripping <laughs> like true um, but yeah no it's I definitely am like man I, I I enjoyed myself more unmedicated but in the grand scheme of things this is probably a better decision yeah totally and who knows I mean also it's like yeah, you're still young, like, who knows what it's going to be, like, 10 years from now, like, maybe there'll be new medication, too, and, you know, maybe you'll just get to a point, or at least this is what I'm working towards, where I am just feel like I do have a support system, and I'll feel good enough to kind of, like, taper off them, but for now, like, it really, I live alone, and I mean, it really does help regulate the spiral instinct. Like, I would I would spiral very easily before and just get so ahead of myself. And now I can kind of catch that and be like, okay, let's not go down that road. You're fine. Like, everything's good. Yeah. Okay, so I want to transition. And I did some research about this article <laughs> that you did in Undefeated. Um, it said that there are several components that make publicly discussing mental health or mental illness a challenge. And one of them is the notion that it's not real. Was there ever a time that you kind of hid your struggles? I think for me, it was a little different because I never, I guess for me growing up, I didn't understand what it was. And yeah. I just, so I didn't even have the vocabulary to, to kind of voice it. Um, and I also felt this there this huge need to be okay. I think um, I like to call it like the oppression Olympics. 
you mm. are often just like, hey, well, I'm okay, and this is this makes me feel this way, but I have a roof over my head. Mm-hmm. I have clothes on my back. Like, why am I complaining? Especially, like, in the student-athlete sense of it all. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm getting $200,000 education mm-hmm. a year, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I have never had health insurance my entire life. Mm-hmm. Now I do. I have a place to live. I have food in my, I have money in my bank account. Like, this is very much a better existence than I came from. But I'm not okay. But, like, you almost, it's just like this guilt trip of, like, mm. why are you not okay? Like, you must be selfish. This mm. must be you being ungrateful. When yeah. in reality, like, it's not about so much as what you have, so much as, like, are you okay? Like, and it's okay not to be okay. And I, right. I, I don't think I ever was given or taught to take that space growing up. Like negative emotions were negative emotions. Get with, get rid of them as soon as possible. As opposed to like sitting through, sitting with them, you know, processing, figuring out why you feel this way and letting that kind of be that moment and moving forward. So then when I did have negative emotions, they became like a tsunami. It was like subconsciously, I was definitely um, ashamed of it because of just never experiencing this or having a conversation about this growing up and kind of always feeling like I needed to be okay and then as I got older I guess now like I'm bipolar so you know like that's the first thing you say when something like the weather's bipolar this girl is bipolar or even just in in like TV like I'll watch a movie and like the the main character will be bipolar and I'll be like I'm not that bad (laughs) I'll feel the need to quantify like hey I'm bipolar but not like that right there's different shades and it's hard to explain to people I I feel that. And it is really like comparing apples to oranges when people say like, oh, you have everything. Like, why are you feeling this way? Like, take, for example, like someone else, like in a third world country, like, it's like, dude, Mm -hmm. but that's not me in a third world country. Like, unfortunately, you know, fortunately, but um, it's like, how do you compare? How do you explain yourself to someone? And and in feeling like you have to explain yourself, that's where some of the guilt and embarrassment comes from because you're like yeah. uh, trying to rationalize it. And then that takes away from the ability to actually process what's happening. Yeah. So it's very intricate. And I think just getting positive coping mechanisms, I don't think I had those growing up, nor did I know a difference, I guess, you know? Uh-huh. And one of the reasons I, I feel like it's so necessary for me to talk about it now because I do quote unquote have it all, right? Right. And I still deal with these things because it's not a, it's not a situational thing. It's just mm-hmm. who you are sometimes. And mm-hmm. sometimes it is situational, right? But generally, right. it's who you are and what, what you're going through. And yeah. those things don't change because I have a million dollars or right. I don't have a million dollars. But in my mind, I'm going to say that. Right. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Those things don't change because of your wealth or your your familial status, whatever. So for me, a lot of it is like I have to speak from this position that everyone quote unquote wants to be in so that they can understand that it happens. Right. Okay, I want to talk about, so your mom's Pamela McGee, Hall Mm -hmm. of of Famer, Olympian, former player for the Sparks, and your brother's two-time NBA champion. So I want to know, how is it growing up in this family of superstars? Did you feel kind of extra protected or maybe extra stressed because you had to live up to their trajectory um 50-50 growing up I, I don't want to I don't want to say like it was a it wasn't hard it was just a thing that I knew right like yeah he came into the gym always the kids got yelled at the most like they felt like I was old sports really late I was always the kid that got yelled at the most because mm-hmm. like they thought I was holding back or wasn't working hard enough when in reality like I just started sports really late and I was very bad to begin with um, um, but I think now that I'm older, I figured out my own success 
Um, and that kind of helped alleviate the pressure because, like, yeah. looking at my family, I totally did disappointment. <laughs> but, <laughs> like, but it looks like on paper. But once I was able to define things for myself and, like, kind of place value in the things I hold near and dear, yeah. um, instead of, like, the accolade part of it, mm-hmm. it helped me a lot. Because, like, realistically, like, I may never be a WNBA champion, right? Like, I may never get the hardware my family has, but... I play sports not only to win, but also to use my platform for something I think is bigger than me. And while I definitely want to be a WBA champion, I want to be an all-star, all of those things, mm-hmm. I'm also making sure that I utilize this platform for something I deem important. And I'm not just wasting time, I guess. And I'm trying my hardest to get better every time I can. So I, I think putting my, my value in the work instead of the outcome definitely helps. That's awesome. I mean, I also read in that article, you said you're on a mission to rewrite what it means to be a survivor and that a lot of the mainstream media shows these extremes like either a perfect human who's overcome everything you know or someone on the verge of suicide but we don't see the in-between we don't see the work that you're putting in so yeah I mean would you say you're kind of in in the in-between now I mean I guess we're all really works in progress when you think about it but I think we all exist on that spectrum Mm -hmm. and the problem with mental health and why it's so hard to have these conversations you don't want to identify with being suicidal especially if you're not actually suicidal right so you're like I can't be I don't know that's them that's not me because I don't feel that way at all Mm -hmm. I never do that in reality like it's a spectrum a group that I would call a we're all a little crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the that's the name of the group. Um, and it's a group of like professionals and athletes and celebrities, and their goal is to share their own kind of story of mental health um, awesome. in an effort to kind of alleviate that stigma. And one of the taglines that you know, like we always hear, one in five people deal with mental illness. Five out of five of us have mental health. Like we all have that. Right. Whether it's great, bad, and different. We all have mental health. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I think a lot of the work is understanding that there's more than the, these two images of what mental illness and mental health look like. Mm-hmm. And so the more we see people telling their stories, right? Like, I love Kevin Love coming out about mm. it. Yep. Liz Cabbage, DeMar DeRozan, because mm-hmm. these are, like, our heroes, right? right. That's what sports stars are to us. Okay, that's amazing. So I want to talk about, yeah, this interesting and sometimes challenging balance of being an athlete and an artist because I relate to this so much I was kind of always a comedy nerd but also like randomly playing dupe on lacrosse (laughs) (laughs) like like thinking of jokes but then also like in the weight room like what is going on and then like how do you lean into this mixture of worlds and how can we show students that like they can be a variety of things man so that's like one of the biggest pillars of my nonprofit, the in-between, right? Yeah. Because we kind of force kids to be either or, and I am literally a depiction of and. Yes. <laughs> and I think both of these parts are equally necessary for me to be a full human, right? Like, mm-hmm. I get something from poetry mm-hmm. that I don't get from basketball, and vice versa. And there's not a right answer. And so for me, like, I think I was, I was artsy, and I did everything besides sports before, I started actually playing sports. Shout out to my dad. Oh, hell yeah. His argument was always like, as soon as you start playing sports, you're going to have these mountains of expectations put upon you. And mm-hmm. I don't want you to take it seriously at 12. And then when it becomes serious, like when it's actually a tangible thing at 17, 18, you hate it. Right. It's been so heavy for you your entire life. So anytime I got in trouble, the first thing my dad took away was basketball. And I was always in trouble for it. So <laughs> I did theater. I did computers. 
I did singing. Nice. I did literally everything but sports. So I kind of had the opportunity to kind of figure out what I enjoyed outside of sports because I, I didn't do sports until high school, really. And literally my freshman year of high school, I made the lead in the school play and I made varsity basketball and I couldn't do both. Ooh. And like the conversation became like, how am I going to get a college scholarship? I was already 6'5". There's not many acting roles for 6'5 females. Like, right. <laughs> so we had to make the like the logical choice, right? Um, but yeah. because of that, it helped me have an outside kind of like passion. Um, and I always tell kids like, you can be both. And it's also just very necessary to be both because granted, I'm a professional athlete. Mm-hmm. But the other 98% of us aren't. Mm-hmm. And when we get to that point where sports stop, we don't know what else we're interested in or what else drives us, what else right. makes us happy because we've been in this environment for so long. So definitely being both was helpful. Like I did slam poetry for a little bit, nice. but I didn't like bringing the competition to that side of my life because mm. I already lived such a competitive life on the other side. Mm. Um, so I kind of shied away from slam poetry because of that. But I need both of these things. Like I always say basketball is what I do. Poetry is who I am. That's cool. Dude, that's amazing. And also I'm sure it's helped you on the road, like traveling or when you have downtime. Cause you, so you uh, played, you played in Israel and then the following year in China. So what was that? I want to talk about like traveling and mental health because I would have been a basket case, like international flights, <laughs> like time changes, new foods. Like, did you lean on poetry during the time? Like, did you have to dig deep and learn how to manage your own mental health on the road? Um, definitely. So when I first, my first year overseas in Israel, I was actually married. It was a whole different, like, element of stressors because I'm now apart from my husband. Um, he was actually getting ready for the NFL draft at the time. So it was just a very stressful mm-hmm. situation without the distance. And then couple that with I'm now across the world, right? So it definitely was hard and it was different. But I think, like, for me, like, my second year in China, like, I had one suitcase full of books. Like, wow. <laughs> literally, I had one suitcase just for books. I understood, like, I'm going to get sick of playing basketball all the time. And when you, depending on what league you're in, it isn't, like, Israel, I had a lot of time mm-hmm. to kind of explore. You know, like, I so saw I had, and we practiced once a day, so I had time to explore. But in China, you're playing three times a week. You got two, two practices a day. Mm. Like, it's ball. That's what you're doing. But you're getting paid amazingly, so right. it's 50-50. Yeah, but exactly, exactly. I still knew, like, I needed to bring, like, something to kind of take my mind off a ball and kind of take me away from the situation. Yeah. Do you um, have um any top authors that you read during that time or um books yeah i read so many books i read the alchemist a classic classic um i had never read it before so that was fun um and then i read a lot of i started reading a lot of like non-fiction um i've never Mm -hmm. been a big non-fiction reader but i started kind of going into that realm which i honestly probably prepared me for my interest in law school i didn't even know that i wanted to do this my therapist would we would schedule facetime kind of conversations but I also have a prayer journal, which is kind of oh, awesome. my therapist when I have no access to one. Yeah. Um, and I don't use it every day like I should, but I, I try to go at least four to five times a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and the cool thing about that is that it allows me to kind of track my feelings and where how I feel like God is working in my life. So I can look back to something like a prayer I wrote six months ago um, and be like, wow, that's what I was worried about then, huh? I'm still worried about that. Or I completely forgot that that's what I was dealing with at that time. It forces me to kind of take time for myself out of my day. I got to sit down. I have to write this. I have to, you know. Totally. that has been super huge things for me. Plus, I have, like, 
and now at this point I have like years of them so it's just really kind of cool to yeah. see um just my own personal progression you know yeah totally I mean journaling so do you um when you say you have a prayer journal do you have like prompts pre-written down or do you pick like a passage and then free flow write about it or do you kind of write Ooh, down that's cool I'm totally gonna add that in that could be cool right I just made that up that sounds really <laughs> cool I'm totally gonna add that in there right but normally it's really just like me sitting down and like instead of me like doing it out loud or on my knees or in my head or whatever I try to like get it out like dear lord this is what I'm struggling with yes or thank you for this like, it also helps me, like, I had a gratitude journal that had, like, prompts. Because these are literally just, like, blank journals. Mm-hmm. One of them had, like, a, a scripture of the day on them, but most of them are just blank journals. I'm totally the person that has, like, 20 blank journals in their house for no no apparent reason. Yes, um, I just ordered one. I have a space cover. I'm, like, obsessed with outer space. I just ordered a fresh one. I can't wait to break into it. Exactly. <laughs> That's literally me. But sometimes I try, it also helps me with my gratitude because, like, mm-hmm. I try to start my prayer with something positive every day. Like, thank you for another mm-hmm. day, right? Sometimes it's literally just, like, thank you for letting me be alive today. Yes. And sometimes it's, like, something deeper that's going on in my life. But I try to start it with something positive and then talk about what I need or what I want. And it, I think it just has really helped me kind of slow down because mm-hmm. when you get into the thick of things, you know, like, you just, like, oh, I'm yeah. so busy sometimes I forget to eat. Oh, man. <laughs> like, I feel you. That's crazy. Although I have a fear of fainting and passing out lol so i just basically bring (laughs) i bring i just like constantly have cliff bars with me but like i mean sometimes i'll just nibble on them and i'm like all right i'm not actually eating food and i do have to remind myself to (laughs) eat a real exactly dude that's crazy so okay i definitely also googled your um poetry book that you published so cool so notes dude i want to plug this so notes in the key of heartbreak is available on amazon so how when did you write that and publish that? So I, I wrote it and published. Well, I wrote it. It's some poems in there are literally like five, six years old. Okay. I said, dang, it might be like ten years old now. That's crazy. I'm getting old. And some of the poems were like right fresh in the moment. Um, I've had a probably enough po- poetry to publish a book for years, but nothing ever felt relevant or serious enough or important enough. Um, and then I got divorced. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there you go. That's. The- <laughs> That's the heartbreak. It was kind of a life-shattering moment for me because I didn't necessarily believe in marriage before I got married, and I damn sure didn't believe in divorce, but it was the right decision for us. We were very young, very naive, and we were college sweethearts. We met at 17, 18, got married at 20, 21, um, and divorced two years later. So, you know, we were very much each other's majority of our life, big life experiences we did together. It was kind of my first time being alone mm. and also realizing that, like, I took so much pride in being a wife so much so that I didn't even like realize that I wasn't taking care of myself and I wasn't pouring into myself and I was so fixated Mm. on being us and being great and being this amazing wife that I didn't even acknowledge like that I also had to be pretty great by myself right and I was capable of being great by myself that whole just experience was kind of like really opened my eyes up and up and just Mm-hmm. It was important enough that I felt like I needed to share it with the world. And so, yeah, like, to this day, I probably, like, some of those poems I can't even read anymore because I'm like, damn. Yeah, <laughs> I feel that, oh, my God. If I, like, opened up to a journal from 2008, I'd be so triggered. I'd be like, oh, my God, I'm not going to read this right now. <laughs> like, you really have to be in a certain state of mind. But the world Absolutely. needs to hear it. So everybody go check out Notes in the Key of Heartbreak available on Amazon. <laughs> it was amazing. And I think also just the one thing about poetry and arts in general is so amazing when people kind of validate your feelings. They're like, yeah, I went through this exact same thing or I've experienced this because it kind of makes you feel a little less like 
I don't want to say isolate. Mm-hmm. Definitely don't want to say trigger or crazy, but yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, when you, when you have these things and you go through this, and other people are like, "Man, mm-hmm. I literally understand that." And mm-hmm. so, like, that book was just like my own little baby. I love that. Have you ever read um, "All About Love" by Bell Hooks? Yes, dude. I am in deep oh. into it right now. So good. Literally, I love Bell Hooks. I read All About Love first. Right now, I'm reading Communion, oh, which nice. is the female search for love. So basically, like, she, every time I read her book, she just reads me. And I'm like, okay, thank you. So. <laughs> totally. <laughs> it's wild. So, you know, like, attachment theory is something I also nerd out on, too. Um, just early attachment styles that we learn as kids. and Oh, for sure. You totally know, a real thing. Like you were saying earlier, when you're a kid, you know, you kind of just, you don't, A, you don't have the vocabulary to talk about what you're seeing. And if what you're seeing and what you're around is not a healthy relationship, you're not, you don't know that because that's all you know. And then that's what's trippy is like when you get older and you're in relationships, then you're like, oh damn, I'm for sure an anxious attachment style. Like, how did I get this way? What did, what have you learned about that, like yourself in relationships? Man. <laughs> I know it's a I loaded question. Chaos. I'm totally the toxic lover. And I'm working on it. <laughs> but I think um I'm totally working on just um undoing a lot of trauma or not definitely trauma, but like <laughs> yeah. I moved past the undoing trauma part to like making better decisions and mm-hmm. understanding why I make the decisions I make. Because I think like, you know, like the, one of the biggest things is like you know like most of us don't grow up with healthy relationships in the home you, you do what you know and you copy what you know the biggest thing for me even in my marriage was like getting to realize like oh this isn't okay this is just what I know um and so like holding myself accountable to kind of changing negative behaviors or negative reactions right and not being like well this is what I grew up with or this is what I you know like just because what's comfortable with you doesn't mean it's okay so I wanna um okay in your in this undefeated article that I read from a couple years back, so there was a psychiatrist, Dr. Janet Taylor, quoted in that article, who said that generally speaking, there's an embedded cultural bias within medical professionals and that sometimes there are healthcare providers who assume that strife in black people is what's to be expected, quote unquote, what's to be expected. Very true. Was there ever a time that you encountered this bias firsthand? Oh, for sure. Um, My first time having a black woman therapist was actually when I moved to Atlanta. Um, And I think the thing about it is just feeling comfortable. Like when you go to your therapist, you wanna feel like you don't have to code switch one. Like, I want to sit in my therapy session and cuss if that's what comes up. Like, if the word is a cuss word, I want to be able to say it. I want to say it. If I'm speaking in slang, I want to be able to say it. I want to be able to undress, right? I think a lot of times it's hard to do that in front of someone that doesn't either come from your area or look like you. You immediately kind of put up this kind of, like, wall, and I don't want to share this because I don't know how they're going to react. or mm-hmm. And you shouldn't feel that way in therapy. And then on the other hand, especially kind of in today's current cultural, current political climate, right? If I'm sitting across somebody that fundamentally disagrees with me in terms of Black Lives Matter, in terms of police brutality, in terms of the president and his policies, Mm -hmm. how can you advise me? And and that's one thing that therapy should be is a safe space for you. Mm -hmm. And if I go into a therapy, like one of my, actually one of my, um, my cousin's roommates, she went into a therapy session and was kind of just venting about Black Lives Matter and everything that's happening and kind of how she was feeling anxious, just how she was kind of coping with all of this. And the therapist decided to go into a rant about how not all policemen are bad. Oh boy. And I don't know, like that's not the place to do that. Like 
even if that's really what you believe, yeah. like, you know, like that, this shouldn't be the conversation we're having right now when I'm explaining to you how I feel, right? Because the one place I'm supposed to feel safe, yeah, I can't even feel safe here, right? And I think a lot of us, especially, we search for safe spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like a natural, like human thing to search for safe spaces. But most of us don't have those places and we don't have those people. And yeah, no, but like, that's a very big thing that people kind of yeah. like, there's a certain baseline of life, like, especially if you're very, if you're culturally inept, you're going to expect me to say, like, mm-hmm. if I tell you someone got murdered in my family, you're going to be like, oh, that's normal, right? Don't you live in the hood? Oh, my God. But that's like a real thing. Like, right. there are really people that culturally ignorant that that's what they're going to, that's their first response as opposed to being like, how do you feel? How do you want to process? How do you, how are you processing this? Have you ever faced that head on with any, any of your therapists? I definitely shy away from, like, my therapist in college is a very kind of obtuse, affluent white woman, and eventually I stopped going to her. You definitely have a, a catch-22 of, like, mm-hmm. if I even have access to resources, are there resources Are they resources that prioritize me and my identity? And that doesn't even get into me being, that doesn't even get into if I'm a part of the LGBTQIA community, right? That's a whole nother standard of do I come to this place and feel safe is there are there any um foundations that you can recommend or resources for people listening so to write love on her arms t-w-l-o-h-a they are a great resource for um finding resources around you or another or other resources regarding mental health mm-hmm. um, amazing mm-hmm. in terms of the lgbtqia community the trevor project has been doing great years for they've been doing great work since i was in high school like they're an amazing organization mm-hmm. the buddy project their entire kind of stance is trying to connect you with people and help you kind of have a friend that's accountable in terms of your mental health journey mm-hmm. um and help you understand that you're not alone gosh i have so many and i just can't they're all escaping me no that's all good that's everyone <laughs> no it's these are three awesome ones i'll link them in the notes and everyone can also go follow you so they can see what you're posting so let's see okay Progress, so progress comes in many forms. What is your current health, mental health maintenance regimen? I currently don't have health insurance right now, or it's not activated until July. So my therapist is on on hold because I can't afford it without. Um, But journaling, uh, my prayer journal, um, I'm medicated. So Mm -hmm. my medicine every day for anxiety and bipolar. and just having accountability partners, uh, people that know me well enough to be like, yo, you're, you're tripping. Um, that definitely helps because I'm good at hiding when mm-hmm. I'm not okay. Mm-hmm. So having people that are, are close enough to me that I allow to be close enough to me to see me and be like, Bonnie, no, <laughs> come on. <laughs> and it took me a very long time to allow myself uh, to let people that close to me. Yeah, the journaling, yeah, I can't recommend it enough because it really is just a blueprint of what you've been going through. And then you can look back at your thoughts like a year ago and you can start to notice the patterns and be like, oh, interesting. Like I am obsessing over guys and I was obsessing over guys for the last like three years. Interesting. So Hoops and Hope Foundation, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so that's my baby. I'm still, we're still very much in the ground, on the ground floor. Mm-hmm. Um but my three pillars, the first one is promoting arts and athletics. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one is family-friendly conversations about sexual violence, sexual education, mental health, and healthy relationships. And then the last pillar, which is very much 10 years down the line once I had like solidified funding, is providing no-cost therapy to inner-city schools um, to help break the school-to-prison pipeline. So instead of this child being marked as bad and getting suspended and missing days in school, mm-hmm. um, 
once they're in trouble a certain amount of times, once like instead of being suspended, now you have to go see this therapist. Mm. And it's not at any cost to the parents or the school district. Because a lot of times it mm-hmm. is like these kids are bad, but especially black and brown kids, they're marked as bad when in reality, like they're going through so much at home that they're just acting out. And because our schools are underfunded and overpopulated, right? this teacher doesn't have time to figure out why they're not doing their work. They only can punish them. Those are like, that's like long time goals. Like once I have like money and stuff, this is like my baby. The mm-hmm. only thing I have, the only program I have, which COVID messed up this year, is a back to backpack giveaway and resource fair. So in order oh. for families to get a free backpack and school supplies, they have to go through all the organizations that are tabling and all the organizations are dedicated to mental health and or women and young girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been super amazing to happen just because like when I was growing up, that's how I got school supplies. And wow. then oftentimes, especially when you live in an underserved community, you hear like, no one cares about you. There's no resources for you. And it's mm-hmm. kind of like this constant thing that you internalize. When in reality, the people doing the work in your neighborhood don't get the credit. Mm-hmm. They don't get the spotlight. Mm-hmm. And we don't know where to look for these things. So it kind of is a, a great situation because a lot of people can figure out where do I turn for these type of different type of problems I have in my neighborhood mm-hmm. and see people like me doing this work. And also, like, you get a free, a little free meal and a free backpack. And so it's yeah. been amazing. Um, and hopefully, as I get more funding and mm-hmm. I have a little more time now that I'm a lawyer, I can put more more time into it. I love that. So it's um, Hoops and Hope Foundation, and people can find it on Instagram? Mm-hmm. Instagram, hoopsandhopefoundation.org. Mm-hmm. Um, it's tagged in my Instagram, but yeah, that's my little baby. Um, and hopefully, if we have this conversation in five years, we'll we'll be talking about a lot more yes things in regards to my nonprofit. Oh my God, I'm circling back in five years' time. You're gonna be a lawyer in a power suit, and we're gonna be sitting on a basketball <laughs> court <laughs> talking about Hoops and Hope Foundation. Well, dude, this has been so amazing. I just want to leave it open. Any words of wisdom or advice that you want to leave any young athletes or um, humans with? I think what you're doing is amazing. I'm so thankful that you're using your platform um, for something that I deem important, you know. Um, But I always say, you know, like, my goal in life is to create safe spaces wherever I go. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think if we all do that a little bit more, we'll have a little easier of a life, you know. And it's it's Mm -hmm. okay not to be okay. And just keep sharing your story. And also, like, I share probably, like, 70% of my life. And that's an an entirely egregious number. Mm -hmm. And everyone's not going to be able to do that. And I get that. My goal isn't that you go out and now share your deepest, darkest secrets to the world. My goal is that you come into situations a little more open. Mm-hmm. You pull your mask down a little bit and you acknowledge that it's okay that you're not perfect every day because no one is. Yes, dude, that snaps. I'm snapping. I'm giving you poetry snaps right now. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. I'm turning on my camera one more time to say farewell. This has been Sad Jocks featuring Amani McGee Stafford. Make sure to give us a follow on IG and email sadjocks33 at gmail.com with any recs, any questions, etc. I also want to give a special shout out to my homies Ben and Brett who are doing amazing things with their new podcast, Head Games, over on YouTube. Folks, this is like actual sports knowledge mixed with psychology from legit PhDs. So go check it out. Next week on the show, I'll be sitting down with Kid Yamaka, otherwise known as Zach Wallman, a professional boxer and host of season one of Why We Fight, a docuseries about world-class athletes, executive produced by Ronda Rousey. Whoa, but guys, his story goes way back. We actually went to elementary school together out in the valley before Zach set off on his own. 
and his journey's been a remarkable one. So stay tuned for that. But for now, L'chaim, get some rest, maybe do a salt bath. I don't know, the moon's still pretty intense, but more on that later. And I'll see you next week.